Lord, be with us as we open your word and speak clearly. We love you. Amen. Turn your Bibles to First Thess- or Second Thessalonians, chapter one, verses one through two. We are starting a new book this morning. We just finished First Thessalonians. All of those are on the podcast if you want to go back and listen to First Thessalonians. But we are picking up in Second Thessalonians this morning, starting in chapter one, right off the bat. So let's read these first two verses. And I just want you to take a deep breath before we do. We're going to only read two verses. And they are verses that are customary to us. We read them frequently. It's the beginning of a letter. But let's read them and just try to see everything we can in them. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and, in, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God had his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. It's a short introduction sentence there, and it's the common greeting that Paul uses. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, it's the exact same. It's the exact same greeting. Now, I just want to clear one thing up. Silvanus is the same as Silas. So when we read back in Acts chapter 17, back when we introduced 1 Thessalonians, when we read back in Acts chapter 17 that Paul and Silas were both in Thessalonica and they, they flee, when we read that, that Silas is Silvanus. That's the same person. It's just the romanization of the name Silas. So um, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy write together this story. And I just want to remind you of what's happened. So in, in Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas go to Thessalonica, and they begin to speak there. They're there for four, three to four weeks total. That's it. They're not there long. They're there for less than a month. And we know this because just a few weeks in, the Jewish leaders and synagogue rise a mob up to try and kick them out of town. Now, this is what's wild. They weren't doing anything. They were just literally having house church. But because the message of the gospel was so offensive to the Jewish leaders and the people of the town, a mob rose up to throw them out of town. So Paul and Silas flee. And they get, it says they are ushered out by night. Now, when we read the letter, we realize... Timothy must have been with them too. And if you read Acts carefully, you realize that Timothy was there as well. But he was young and he was, he was a, a teenager. And he was among them. So Timothy is not prominent in the story of Acts chapter 17. He's not even mentioned. He's there, but he's not a prominent figure. He's not the one that is standing up in front. He's not the one leading everything. Paul and Silas seem to be the two guys that were doing that. And they're, they're the ones that have to be ushered away. They're the ones that get hunted down by the mob. They're the ones that get all the attention and they have to flee. And we know that Timothy is there from Acts chapter 15 through 16. So remember that the church forms, the Jews get mad and stir up a mob. Paul and Silas run away at night, presumably with Timothy running with them. And then in Acts chapter 18, Paul goes to Corinth and he stays in Corinth for 18 months 
For a year and a half, he's in Corinth. Now, he was in Thessalonica for three weeks. He's in Corinth for a year and a half. But we know about the Thessalonians, and their faith has covered the globe. Everybody hears about the church in Macedonia, which is the Thessalonican church, and the Philippian church. That's the area. These, these people are noted for their faith. Paul hears about their faith when he's in other places. Indeed, out of their extreme poverty, they give to everybody else. It says that the Macedonian believers, which would include the Thessalonians, they gave out of their poverty. They gave to people even when they had nothing. They heard there was a need and they were so burdened for the church of Jesus Christ that they gave to them. They gave out of their poverty. So he's there for three to four weeks. Then he goes to Corinth and for a year and a half, He's there, and while in Corinth, he writes both Thessalonian letters. So when he's in Corinth, he writes both these letters. We also know that Timothy was sent back in Acts chapter 17, verse 14, and from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, that he was sent back, and he's sent back not just to, not just to be there, but he's sent back to establish and exhort you in the faith. That's what Paul sends Timothy back for. And there's an application, real quick application we can draw here. That sometimes you're not the one in the lead. Sometimes you're not the one that's in the front. Sometimes you're not the one that's leading everything. And sometimes that's because it leads to you having a much longer and more fruitful ministry than the one that was in the lead. Paul and Silas are not able to go back in. But they leave and they send Timothy back in. And Timothy gets to spend time with them, exhorting them and establishing them in the faith. Sometimes the, being the lesser leader, sometimes being the second hand or lesser leader leads to a longer, more fruitful and more sustained work. Prominence and attention does not always mean you're fruitful. Being noticed does not always mean you're fruitful. Indeed, it's often the person who is under the stage. This is the, uh, I should back up and explain what that means. Uh, William Booth, when he would preach for the Salvation Army, would stand on a stage, and uh, usually a makeshift stage that he had people build, and there would be, that he had people who would crawl under the stage and pray. And we don't know many of their names. We don't know their names. We know that they did it because a guy named John Lawley uh, did it. And he told everybody after years when he was done, he said, they said, how'd you get started in ministry? And he said, William, Brother Booth was preaching and I didn't have anything else to do. So I crawled under the stage to engage in the spiritual warfare prayer while he preached. There's even a story of William Booth up on stage who recognizes he's losing his audience you know, he would preach to drunks and, and he would preach in the east, east end of London to drunks and homeless people and drug addicts. And he was losing his audience and he stomps on the, on the stage and says, pray harder. And then he keeps going because he knew that the power of the gospel was not in his words or his ability, but in the prayers of the saints enacting the spirit of God into the hearts of people. Your prayers matter. So the person under the stage 
often has a much longer, more fruitful and sustained ministry than the guy on top, than the guy that's visible. So we see, enjoy, you should, we should enjoy our moments of nameless service. Enjoy our moments of service where we are nameless. So Paul wrote this in Corinth, and if he wrote this in Corinth, the dates end up being somewhere around 51 to 53 AD. That means that it's about uh, 20 years after Christ's crucifixion. Right? 51 to 53 AD is about 20 years after Christ's crucifixion. Discipleship takes a long time, and it requires follow-up. Discipleship takes a long time and it requires follow-up. So we see Paul following up with what he does. He starts something in a place and he actually writes letters to them. He's calling them and contacting them. This would be akin to today, calling people, having coffee with them, talking to people over the phone, connecting with people, I don't know, texting with people. Um, College students use all kinds of weird things that I have no idea how they work. I know one of them is called Discord. I don't know what that means. But they use it all the time. And so there's a bunch of them, and they connect this way. And I want to encourage you that that's discipleship, and that's the same thing Paul is doing when he's writing letters. He's connecting with people, and he's, he's keeping track. He's following up. Discipleship requires that you connect and that you continue to connect. It's a long term process. Again, this is not, Paul is not somebody who got a lot of credit because he stood on a stage and spoke. Paul is somebody who gets a lot of credit because he spent years with people writing letter after letter after letter. And at the time, no one took note. Yet God used that ministry. Timothy is all over the New Testament. And one thing we know about Timothy is that he didn't seem to have any magic powers or skills or super strengths. He wasn't like Apollos, who's considered one of the greatest preachers in history. He wasn't wasn't like Apollos, and yet he's mentioned so much more because he had long-term fruitful relationship from being the guy under the stage for years. He was the quiet one who was working faithfully. And that's what God calls us to do. That's who God God calls us to be. So the church of Thessalonians, let's see. So those are the people that are mentioned here. Paul, Silvanus, Timothy. Silas is Paul's brother who goes with him. Remember when he splits with John Mark, he takes, I mean, when he splits with Barnabas, he takes Silas. Barnabas takes John Mark. And they go their separate ways. Silas goes with Paul. Silas is an equal person to Paul. They are on equal footing. They're brothers. You can see in the scripture they both have the similar gifts. They're both equally strong in the Lord. And they go everywhere together. Timothy is the younger one. He is the one who gets left in Thessalonica to encourage and establish them. And he is the one who is constant. Now this, the word we, by the way, is used over 20 times in this book to refer to these three men. We is used over 20 times. Whereas I is used twice. I is used twice. And we can learn something from this. We is used over 20 times. I is used twice. Paul understood, and we ought to too, that ministry is done together, not one person. 
It's not by one guy. Ministry is done together. We are in this together. We work together. We are the church. We are in this together. So to the church of Thessalonica, of the Thessalonians, the church here is the word ecclesia. Now we use the word church. And if you, if you're interested in doing a word study that comes from Kirkos, which is the, uh, the Latin derivative of, uh, Lord and, uh, building like church people. And so we use this word church, but we need to understand that the Greek word that Paul is using is the word ecclesia. This word ecclesia is used all throughout the Old Testament Septuagint to describe a congregation of people. It's never once used to describe a building. It's never one time used to describe a building. Ecclesia is used to describe people gathering together. In fact, it's even used at one point to describe a mob. In Acts chapter 19, verse 32, verse 39, and verse 41, it's used to describe a mob, an assembly, and an appointed time when people would gather together. So this is a gathering together. This is ecclesia, a collection of people, the called out ones. I know that most of us have heard that ecclesia means called out ones. It's, it's two words, out of and call, kaleo and ek. Out of call. So they are called out ones together. They are called out from what? So think about what they're called out from. They're called out from the world. They're called out from the things of this world. They're called out from the affections of this world. They're called to something different. They're called to be set apart and holy. And I hope that these scriptures are just running through your head. That you are called to be separate and set apart from the world. You are called to be holy as I am holy. You are called to be his children. To walk in accordance with the manner to which you have been called. You are called out. You are called out of idolatry. You are called out. You are called to value life and to work in this place. You are called to the kingdom of God. You are called out into God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So from the outset, this is a very simple message this morning, but it is, it is so critical because it is the foundation of understanding Christianity. This is the basic Christian creed. God is father. Jesus Christ is savior and Lord. This is basic Christian creed. This is the thing you must believe to be Christian. Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. So here we have this phrase. To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is repeated that you receive grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. The connection we have with one another as called out ones, the connection we have with one another is secured and created in this confession of faith that God is Father and Jesus is Lord. We share a connection because God is Father and Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ, by the way, word for Messiah or Savior. Jesus is Lord and Savior. We've got God the Father 
and God the Son, who is our Savior and Lord, and that's what unites us. That's why Christianity looks so bizarre to the world, because there's no affinity groups, there's no grouping. That's why it's so beautiful when you see the people of God, because they're all over the map. They're broken and poor. They're rich and well and well cared for. They're healthy and they're unhealthy. They are, they are multiple types of people. There are Christians who like rap. I'm just going to throw that out there. There are Christians who like country music. There are Christians who like classical music. There are Christians who like that weird dubstep stuff. There are Christians from every single walk of life and every single culture and background and tribe and tongue and nation. And that's what the church is supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like a bunch of different looking people. It's not supposed to be homogenous. In fact, when you look at Christianity, it's the only religion, I would argue that Christianity is the only religion where you don't become more homogenous. You become vastly more unique as you get closer and closer to Jesus. It's the only one where you don't end up looking like everybody else. If you pursue Christ, you will become more and more uniquely who you are supposed to be. And in the body, that, those strengths will be used by the body of Christ to advance the kingdom. And all of our strengths and gifts are different. And they all come together. And we see this beautiful picture in the book of Revelation of every tribe and tongue and nation. It's also repeated in Isaiah chapter 53. Of every tribe and tongue and nation singing the same song to the Lord. And then again in Isaiah 58, that the watchmen on the wall sing the same song to the Lord using the same language. Using every tribe and tongue singing the same language, same words, same tongue, same everything. And yet they're all in different voices, all in different languages, all in different... It's remarkable how we can sing the same exact thing and be in completely different cultural backgrounds and groups. This is what we are, and we are only that because of Jesus and God. The church does not exist apart from God as Father and Jesus as Lord. The church does not exist apart from God as Father and Jesus as Lord. So let's dive into this basic theology this morning, and we're going to go from text to text, and you might want to write them down. I'll try to try to be... Uh, reasonable in my pace, so you can write them down if you're writing them down. First, God as Father. God is our Father. Note that first. It's our Father, not my Father, not your Father, our Father. This is God as our Father. So he says, God, our Father. And then in Matthew, so we get some insight into this through some of these verses. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 through 9, it says, Do not pray as the Gentiles do, who think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. And then he goes on and says, Pray like this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? I'm sorry, I learned that in King James. So you've got the... Uh, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I hope you've memorized that, that prayer. It's a great one. So Matthew chapter 6, verse uh, six th- verse 7 through 9, he says, Our Father, and he knows you. This is your Father. So this is a Father who knows who you are. He knows you as a Father who knows your needs. It's repeated again in Matthew chapter 6, verse 32, that this Father knows you and he knows what you need. 
He knows you. He is Father. He's your Father. He knows who you are. I know my children. You know your children. I am their Father. I know them. Something happens, and my, my mother, when I'm on the phone, oh, this kid did this. And what's she say? It's your kid. Right? Because she knows me. And I'm their father. And I know them. So your father knows you and he knows what you're like. In Psalm 68, we read this this morning. He is a father to the fatherless. He's a father to the fatherless. He's a father to the Just grasp that for a minute. He supersedes your earthly experience. If you don't have a father, or if you had a bad father, or if your earthly father was just rotten to the core, whatever it was, God supersedes that. God supersedes that, and he becomes your father. You are not bound to the father that you had on this earth. You are not bound to the lack of father you had on this earth. This is particularly poignant to me. My father died when I was 15. Now, I had an incredible father. You'll hear me talk about him often. He was amazing, an amazing man of God, an incredible man. But he died when I was 15, and I learned very quickly that God supersedes my experience of loss of father by giving me himself as my father. He's my dad. He's my father. He knows me. He knows my needs. He's the one I can go to with things. And in those moments when... I think to myself that I want to talk to my dad, that I wish I could ask him a question or something. I am suddenly reminded that my heavenly father is always available to me. He's always present and he's always there. And he is my father. He is a father to the fatherless. God is greater than any earthly father. He gives himself to you as father. James chapter 1 verse 16 through 18 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift comes from, comes, I'm sorry, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow or due, due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits. Of his creatures. He is the Father of lights, exposing and revealing everything, including who I am. He's the Father of lights. He's the one by whom light comes from. He's the Father of lights. He, as and as Father, he made this world by choice and will. I hope you heard that. He made this world by his choice and will for you that you would be a first fruits for him, that you would be his children, his first fruits, his, his valued treasure, that you would be that for him. This world was created because he wanted to create it, because he wanted to create you. He wanted you. So just as we think about God as father, think about the fact that he wants you He's your father and he wants you. 
He wants you so much that he went out of his way to make the world with you in it. He wants you. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 16, he explains that he is a father even to those who are not recognized by Israel. You see, the Gentiles get grafted in through faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know anybody in this room is Jewish or not. I am not. I get grafted in by Jesus. I get grafted into the kingdom promises of God. I get salvation. I get him to be my father because he has grafted me in and saved me. He is father to those who believe. He takes people who are not his and makes them his. He takes us who were named, not mine, and names us mine, according to the book of Hosea. He takes those who are no mercy and names them mercy and gives mercy to them. He is a gracious God who gives us Father. So if God is Father and we are his children, then what does that say about us? Well, Luke chapter 12, verse 32 says that The father gives his flock or his children the kingdom because it is his pleasure to do so. So as Christians, we get the kingdom of God. As those who follow the father, who are children of the father, adopted by his grace, we get the the inheritance of the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 6, it says he gives us existence and purpose for our existence. He gives us existence, and not just existence. He didn't just bring you into life and then let you go. He gives you existence and then establishes purpose for you. And that purpose is in Him, and it is Him. If we are His, we will love our enemies and do good. For Luke chapter 6, verse 35 through 36, explains that He is kind to the wicked, and He is a merciful God. If we love Him, if we are His children, we will love people, and we will... Do good to people because if we're his, he is kind to the wicked and merciful. That's how he is known. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 16 through 18, we are called to be holy as he is holy. And implicit in that call is because you're his. Because you're his, you are called to be holy as he is holy and to live in righteousness. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. We are loved by God and known by him, not by the world. So we are loved by God and known by him, not by the world. You should not be loved and known by the world. The one who knows you is your heavenly father. You should be confusing the world. The world should look at you and go, I don't know. They should look at you and be a little bit awkward because you are belonging to God. The security of personhood and who we are is found in knowing God as Father. The security of knowing who I am and my identity and who I am and who I've been made to be is in found in knowing God the Father. And knowing that He is Father and that He is, he is our God. And Jesus Christ, our Lord. So it's in God, our Father, and in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the word here for Lord is kurios, which most of you know is the word uh, for 
It's, it's the word akin to Adonai in the Old Testament. It's this, this word, my master or my Lord. Uh, it, it, it establishes an authority. There's a Lord over you. There's a master over you. You are no longer slaves to the world, but now slaves to righteousness. No longer slaves to sin, but now slaves to righteousness. That terminology there is consistent here, where if he is your Lord, you are no longer submissive to sin and and death and wickedness. Now you are submissive to the Lord Jesus Christ and life and righteousness. That's what you are. That's who your master is. The word curios is that word. This is the basic Christian creed of. Uh, this is the basic creed of Christianity. This is it. Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. If a denomination says something other than that, if it ne- negates that at any point, they are not Christian. Let me say that again. If a denomination negates that at any point, Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, then they are not Christian. This is the basic Christian creed. There are numerous denominations of Christianity. Thanks to Protestantism, the Catholic cardinals were actually right. If you have everybody able to read the scripture, you're going to have all kinds of interpretations. That's right. We think that's a good thing because God is big and we do better if we sharpen each other than if we let some guy speaking Latin tell us what the Greek and Hebrew book is supposed to say. We we believe that it is good to have the word of God in your hands and in my hands and individually. We believe this. This is beautiful. The basic Christian creed of the basic creed of Christianity is Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Believing in your heart that Jesus Christ is Savior, that He's resurrected, that He's Lord. Believing in your heart that, and then confessing it with your mouth. This is the step. So if somebody asks you, what must I do to become a Christian? Believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again. And then confess it with your mouth. Live it out. Now, I just want to be clear. The word confess, uh, what Paul uses this word in multiple places, but there are two specific ones. In Philippians, it says, uh, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in that passage, he is making a reference to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, which says, swear allegiance there instead of confess. It says the phrase, swear allegiance. So everyone will swear allegiance. That's what confession means. Confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, confessing Him is to swear allegiance to Him. You are swearing allegiance to Jesus. So when somebody says, what must I do to be saved? Believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Died for your sins on the cross. Rose again that you would have life. And that He is Lord. Confess that with your mouth. This is the basic Christian creed. As Lord, His will is our aim. So we see that that we are to believe and confess. And as a result, we have life 
and life eternal. Our sins are forgiven and we have life eternal. And then we can ask, well, what does this mean? Lord, what do we, what do we follow here? And it says, if, if he is Lord, then his will is our aim. Our target is to do his will. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 says, do everything that you do in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, you are to do everything you do in his name. He's your target. He's what you aim at. Now you can take this to an extreme and you would not be wrong to do so. You might be a little bit extreme, a little bit absurd at times, but you can take it to an extreme and you would not be wrong to do so. You might exhaust yourself and Jesus might be like, you need to calm down a little bit, but you would not be wrong to make every single thing you do aim at Christ. I did a bit of an experiment for about a year. I made every single piece of entertainment that I watched something about Jesus. Every single piece. I listened to sermons. I think I listened to every John Piper sermon there ever has been. Because I had a year. And anytime I turned something on, even if it was just playing in the background, you know how you do that? You turn on something in the background. I bought conference videos. I bought all kinds of things. I listened to books on audio. I listened to all kinds of things. I did. I had constant infusion of only sermons and scriptures and texts about Jesus and theology books. Only those all the time. And it was a little bit extreme. It, was, it wasn't wrong. That's what's wild about it. It was extreme. And there were times when... I was like, I need to lighten up, right? Like there were moments I was like, you need to take a breath and go have a cup of coffee and talk about something lighthearted. You know, everything was intense all the time for a year. Then God impressed on me that you can lighten up and enjoy the color of trees. It's okay to go, that bird is pretty. Like that's, and not have to think about how God designed the bird and it flies and it's got all these amazing things. Like, and not have to think that deeply about everything. You can just go, Cardinals have a pretty red. That's allowed. That's allowed. And you can thank God for the pretty red. This is, this is okay. You can listen to music and go, man, Chopin was really beautiful. Like, that's allowed. That's okay. It doesn't always have to remind you of heaven. That's all right. But you would not be wrong to make everything your aim to be glorifying and knowing Jesus. Doing everything in Jesus' name, also, according to Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, is a form of giving thanks or a form of gratitude. And one of the things we know from reading 1 Thessalonians is that gratitude breeds contentment. Learning and cultivating gratitude breeds contentment. We gave you that assignment a couple weeks ago that if you want to cultivate gratitude, start writing down everything you're thankful for. And then write down the things you're not thankful for. And thank God for those. Write all the stuff that you're not thankful for. And thank God for those. That, that will cultivate gratitude like nothing else. So Jesus is Lord. We've got... We've got this idea that confessing him is a swearing allegiance to him. He is Lord. He is our aim. We see that Jesus is the only Lord. There is no other Lord. That's why it is so wrong and uncomfortable when we place something else above him. That's why in our hearts and even in our society, even the world, when they put something above Jesus, it's uncomfortable, leads to misery, 
leads to discomfort, leads to, leads to constant unhappiness, that's because Jesus is the only Lord. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, where it says, for, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, here's the second part, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. God the Father is the reason for our existence. He's the one who gives us purpose, and he's the one that gives us existence. Jesus is the means by which we exist, and the means by which we find purpose. Through him are all things. Nothing exists that, that exists without him. He is Lord over all things. He's the only Lord. He's the only one with the power of existence in and of himself. And that's why we say when we are seeking personal identity and life and understanding of who we are, when we want to understand who we are, we must know Jesus. Because he's the only one who establishes your identity. You don't get to pick your identity. That's not how that works. You were given an identity, and that you will be much happier, and you will be much more full, knowing who you were made to be, because it's who you are. Did you know in the book of Revelation, there's a picture where you come before the Lord, and if you have persevered in the faith, he gives you a stone, and it has a name on it, and that name is only known by you and him. And when you get it, it all of a sudden makes sense. When you get that name, it all of a sudden makes sense, and you go, that's my name. That's who I am. I knew it. And everything works. Everything makes sense all of a sudden. That's because God knows who you are. God the Father knows who you are. Jesus knows who you're supposed to be. They know you and they made you. And get this, they want you that way. They want you to be who you are. Isn't that awesome? I don't know of any other place on the earth where you could say that. That somebody wants you to be who you are. No, everybody wants you to be who they want you to be. But Jesus wants you to be who you are. All your warts and bruises and bumps are beautiful to him. He's made you. He wants you to be who he made you to be. He is Lord over all things. Romans chapter 12, 10, verse 12. Even death and life, he's Lord over. In Romans 14, verse 9. He's even Lord over death and life. In John chapter 13, verse 13 through 14, we have this beautiful picture of our Lord who comes before his disciples and kneels down to wash their feet. The Lord of all glory bends down to serve his people and says, this is the example of what a leader is of who I am to you and who you are to be to one another. Our Lord and Master knelt down to the dirt to serve His people. In John chapter 21, verse 7, He is called our Lord and Teacher. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, He has a kingdom as Lord. He has a kingdom and you get to be a part of it. In Luke chapter 6, verse 5, He is Lord over Sabbath and He is the one in whom we find rest. In Jude verse 4, we see this warning that license and is a denial or, or sinful license, saying you're allowed to do whatever you want. 
is a denial of Him as Lord and evidence of a person's condemnation. That person is not saved. So Jesus is Lord and Savior. When we confess with our mouth, we are presenting ourselves to Him as His subjects, and He is our Lord. In God the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, we find our grace and peace that come to us. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ to us. We will find grace and peace and life and life abundant in knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And God as Father. He is your Father. Jesus is Savior and Lord. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that He died on the cross and rose again. And you will be saved. Father, we pray this morning that you would be delighted in your people here. That we would embrace the truth that you are Savior and Lord. That you have sent Jesus Christ. He has died on the cross that we would have life. And you resurrected to give us new life. Lord, we pray that we would be an honor to you as your people. Lord, we love you and we trust you in all things. Amen.